Our lesson today is from Luke 16, starting with verse 1. It's Luke 16, starting with verse 1. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give me an account of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do. So that, when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? He answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. Then he asked another, How much do you owe? And he replied, A hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and make it eighty. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly, for the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in very little is faithful also in much, And whoever is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The love of God, or the word of God for the people of God, thanks be to God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Lord, we pray that as we hear your scriptures read today, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and our souls so that we would be transformed by your word so that we would learn better what it means to be your disciples in this place that you have given us. Lord, we ask this in the name of your Son and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, One of my favorite movies is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And you've probably seen it. Terry's seen it, I can tell. And uh, this is a, a movie about scoundrels. There's no morally reputable character in the story. It's a, it's a tale of uh, three uh, convicts from Parchman Farm who escape off a chain gang and are in search, supposedly, of a treasure that's soon to be, uh, not buried, that's not the right word, but at the bottom of the newly flooded Arkabutla Lake. And as they go about, you know, you learn a little bit about their past. There's uh, Ulysses Everett McGill, who supposedly is a thief, but it turns out he was in jail actually for practicing law without a license. There's Pete Hogwallop. We don't know what Pete was in jail for, but I mean, he was in parchment, so it was something. Uh, and there is Delmer O'Donnell, who uh, was in uh, prison for knocking off the Piggly Wiggly in Yazoo City. 
And you follow these characters, and uh, even though none of them are uh, especially appealing, you find yourself rooting for them. And you want them to come out of it on the other side, and you, and you are with these guys. You're rooting for them. It's a story about scoundrels, but it's still a story that's uh, compelling. And in the parable that Jesus tells, this famous parable of the dishonest manager, the parable of the shrewd manager, it's a, it's a story about scoundrels. And maybe it's not the kind of story that we would expect Jesus to tell because, you know, Jesus is sinless, right? So he's not, you wouldn't think that he would be talking about and lifting up as praiseworthy people who are dishonest or even shrewd, but yet he does. So we have this very strange parable that's difficult for a lot of people to make sense of. It's been very difficult through the history of the church. And in fact, if you're reading this and you're not a little bit confused then it probably means that you haven't been paying attention because I've read it quite a few times and I'm still a little bit confused by it. It's a confusing parable. But I think in the middle of that confusion, uh, in the middle of this story about scoundrels, we can learn something about what it means to be God's people in his kingdom, to learn what it means uh, to follow Jesus through this very strange story. So this story about scoundrels, much like with O Brother, Where Art Thou?, um, there's no morally um, praiseworthy people in this story that Jesus tells. The first is uh, the first person that comes up is a, is a rich man, and rich guys are almost always bad guys in the Gospels and in the New Testament in general. Even in Luke, uh, soon after this parable, we're going to have the story about the rich man who is in hell and Lazarus who's in the bosom of Abraham, and the rich guy is the bad guy, as you might surmise from the fact that he's, he's in hell. Uh, and then shortly after that, we'll have the story of a young man who comes to Jesus and asks him, you know, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, go and sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me. And it says that the man went away sorrowful because he had many possessions. So the rich, right in the stories, right around this one in Luke's gospel, are not presented in a good light. So when we hear a story that involves a rich man, we should just go ahead and assume that this guy is a bad guy. But it's not just the rich man. The manager himself is not, uh, not praiseworthy. So from the very beginning, we know that this is a bad guy. He's described as squandering his owner's property. That's the same term that's used for the younger son in the parable of the prodigal son, the younger son takes his share of his father's inheritance. He goes off into a foreign country and he squanders it. And it's the thing that he's done wrong, the prodigality, the prodigal son. This uh, manager has also been wasteful. He's wasted his manager's resources. And his manager's found out about him and he's going to hold him to account. So when the manager finds out that uh, you know he's, he's going to get fired and he's going to have to give an account of what he's been up to, his reaction should also tell us that this isn't someone that is a good guy. But what's he say? He says, you know, I'm, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too proud to beg. And, uh, and you hear that and I want to say, what a little jerk. You know, you've been stealing from your master and now you think that you're too good to actually go and work hard and, and earn a day's living. I mean, this guy thinks that he, he's entitled. He thinks that he deserves uh, wealth. He thinks he, you know, he ha should have good things coming to him, and he's just going to take it. So his reaction tells us too that this is not a good guy. 
And then the response that he has to the situation. Uh, he, he hatches this scheme to get himself uh, out of it. And what he does is he goes to uh, people who owe his master money. And this is large, large sums of, of, of uh, well, olive oil and, and wheat, kind of taking the place of money. He goes to them and he cooks the books with them. He says, okay, what do you owe? You owe 100 jars of olive oil. We'll just call it, we're going to change this here. We're going to erase it. We're going to make it 50. So you just pay him 50. He goes to the other guys. Okay, what do you owe? 100 bushels of wheat? Okay, let's get rid of that. We're going to make that, uh, we're going to make that 80. So he ingratiates himself to these guys so that when his master kicks him out, that he will have a place to go. In that day, there was a very strong uh, honor-shame culture and a strong sense of having a patron. So if you uh, were just go, you know, making your way in the world, you would make friends with somebody who is wealthier than you were uh, so that that person could do you a favor. You'd work for them, do them a favor, and they'd do you a favor. And, and this went up and down like a whole, a whole chain of relationships. And of course, we do that to a degree in our day, but for them, it was very, very strong. And you didn't want to violate one of these relationships. So this, this manager, by helping out uh, these debtors to his former master, ingratiates himself to them. And he makes them owe him a favor so that when he gets kicked out, he gets to go and he, they can maybe give him a job. They can take care of him. They can make sure that you know, he doesn't have to go dig, or, dig a ditch or, or beg. So he takes advantage of the situation and he essentially embezzles his master's money. That's what you do uh, when you have been given responsibility for you know, a sum of money or resources and you misappropriate it. This guy embezzles the master's money and he involves the master's debtors in the embezzlement. So none of these guys are good guys. So you would think, you would think that when the master finds out what his manager has done, that he's going to be all the more angry, that he's going to kick him right out, maybe he's going to have him killed, that he's going to be mad. But oddly, oddly, that's not what happens in the story. Because the master, when he finds out what his manager has been up to, he sort of gives him a golf clap. He says, okay, well, well done. And the reason for that is the, the, the extreme, well, the almost ridiculous reaction of the master. Jesus is setting us up to sort of be thinking that, you know, this guy, it's sort of like there, there's honor among thieves. You know, he know when someone's pulled a good one over him. And he's not mad because he's just as crooked as the other guy. He's almost admiring the manager's dishonesty. That's the almost extreme situation that Jesus tells in this parable. None of these characters are anyone that you would want to be like or want your kids to be like. But yet Jesus tells this story. So what do we do in a story like this? You know, we've been in a series called Living Jesus' Parables. And the idea is that the parables tell us about the living Jesus and that also the parables tell us about how we might live in response to the work of Jesus. But what do we do with the dishonest manager? We can't easily fit him into that mold because surely Jesus isn't saying that we should be like this manager in his dishonesty. That doesn't make any sense. Clearly, Jesus doesn't want us to be dishonest. Um, and certainly, it's not saying that Jesus himself is dishonest. So what do we do? Well, one way that we could take is to simply, we could kind of take the edge off the parable. And a lot of people have gone that way. And if you've heard this, 
preached on before, you might have heard one of these interpretations, and they're not necessarily wrong, but I don't think they're all that helpful. Some people say that, you know, what this manager's actually doing, he's just cutting out his commission. He's just not taking the, the you know, 50 jugs of, of olive oil commission and the 20 bushels of wheat commission that he would have gotten. So he's really, you know, not doing anything wrong. And some people will say that, well, really what this manager has done is he's discovered that his master is charging too much interest of these people. Sometimes that happened. Uh, and he's cut out this excessive interest, so he has guilted his master into not doing anything with him in response to squandering the money. The problem with those interpretations, though, is that Jesus doesn't say anything about that when he tells the story. And we have to basically make a lot of assumptions to try to get this manager off the hook. And I don't think that works because you're having to just assume things that actually aren't present there in the parable when what actually is present is that Jesus describes the man as unjust or dishonest. The actual word there is adikia. It's unjust. So Jesus tells us the, the manager's unjust, and I'm, I'm just kind of thinking that we should believe him. This is an unjust manager. This is not a good guy. But yet Jesus tells the story about him. Well, what do we do? What do we do with this dishonest manager? I think the point that Jesus is making is he's setting up this extreme story of dishonesty to tell us what it means to be extreme in our obedience on the other side. So this manager is completely extreme in his disobedience. And we, in response, should be extreme in our obedience. All through the Gospels, you have stories of um, reversal. So you have, for example, the as I mentioned before, the, 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 the rich man who winds up in hell and the poor man who winds up with Abraham. You have the story of Jesus himself, who even though he is crucified, winds up being the one who will be raised from the dead for the salvation of everyone. The kingdom of God involves reversal. And this story involves a sort of reversal because it, the reverse of the shrewd manager's extreme dishonesty is what we should be in God's kingdom. That we should be shrewd about what we're doing, but that we should also be willing to risk everything that we have in following God. Luke, as he uh, tells this parable in his gospel, gives four explanations from it. And the, the actual parable ends right there at verse 8. And what follows is an explanation of the parable. And there are, four, there are four little points that Luke makes, sort of boom, 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 right quick in a row. The first one he says is this in verse 8. For the children of this age are more shrewd in their dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. So here's where that reversal comes in. You know, if even dishonest people can be wise, that's another word for, for shrewd there, that'd be a good translation. If even uh, evil people can be wise about the way that they encounter the world, then God's people should be wise about the way that they go about doing their business in God's world. In another place, Jesus will say in, in Matthew 10, 16, uh, to be shrewd as snakes or to be wise as snakes and innocent as doves. And I think that's, that's sort of the point that he's getting at with this parable, that his people should be uh, wise about the way that they understand what they're doing. 
what that means for us now is that, you know, when we're out there doing ministry in the world, we have to, we, it, it doesn't pay to just be naive and to say, okay, we're going to go out there and we're going to do some good things and, you know, people will respond to it and it's going to work. It doesn't pay to be naive. We actually have to understand the realities that people face. We have to understand the realities of economics in our community. We have to understand the realities of what leads people to be addicted to drugs. We have to understand the realities of what leads a family to collapse. And it's not enough just to, you know, see a need and sort of throw money at the problem. But we actually have to build a relationship with people so that we can understand what they're going through. We can understand what's led to their circumstances. And in our community, we have to know it well enough to know why things are like we are if we're going to be effective in our ministry. Um, there's a philosopher named uh, Slavo Šižek, and don't try to say that 10 times fast. I had to practice a lot to be able to say Slavo Šižek, and I don't want to have to visit you in the hospital if you try it unprepared. So Slavo Šižek, I ran across this quote from a friend of mine the other day. I had it um, out there. He says, when we uh, are, are shown scenes of starving children in Africa with a call for us to do something to help them, the underlying message is something like this. Don't think, don't politicize, forget about the true causes of their poverty. Just act, contribute money so that you don't have to think. And when I read that, at first I was offended because I said, you know what? You know, my wife and I, we support several good ministries like that and we think that it, it does good. And why, why just criticize? Why just criticize that? But as I thought about what Slavo had said more, I started to realize that, you know what, I think he actually has a point. Because I don't think he's saying that we shouldn't be contributing to help people get out of poverty. But what he's saying is that it's not enough just to say, okay, we're going to make ourselves feel good by sending money towards something. But we actually have to understand what goes on to contribute to people living in the situations that they live in. Because if we don't, then we're never going to be able to respond to it effectively. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that that's true not only of when you're giving to someone a continent away. And there are good ways to do that, by the way. I have a, I have a good friend whose organization I'm a big supporter of and fan of that they dive deeply to really understand why children aren't able to get an education, aren't able to you know, go to school, and, and aren't supported in the ways that they need to be. So it, there are good ways to do that. But you know, in our community, too, um, when someone comes to the charge for, for help, and that happens uh, a fair bit, what I try to do is not just to say, okay, okay what do you need? All right, here's some money, go away. Um, because that doesn't do anything for them. That doesn't build a relationship. What I try to do is to find a way to go and sit down with them, to talk to them, to get to know them, to understand their situation, to understand who they are and what they're going through, um, and then to be able to respond to them in a way that's really helpful. And sometimes that's that's using uh, you know the money that y'all give through the uh, through the margarine bowl and all of that to help them. Um, and we do that, but it's not enough just to say, okay, we've sort of helped you now go away. But we want to help people in a way that we actually can walk alongside them and understand who they are and understand what they face and actually build a relationship. And that's risky and difficult. It's difficult to do that because, you know, so often we, um, it's easier just to sort of make the problem go away or to see people as a problem instead of to see them as a person. 
But if we're going to not be naive about what we face when we go out there and are in ministry to people, we need to really risk getting to know them. So that's the first lesson there in verse 8. The second comes in verse 9. It says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Now, this is a really strange verse. Uh, Make friends for yourself by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into eternal homes. Now, if you have King James, it might be a little bit misleading because the translation there will say, make friends for yourself of wealth. And some people have read that and say, okay, it means I should make rich friends, or it means that I should actually be friends with money, which, you know, that's not going to be a very good friendship. Um, That's not what it's saying. Uh, The way that we've used the word of has changed a little bit since King James's day. What this is saying is to make friends of yourself by means of wealth. And I still don't think that what this is saying is that uh, we simply need to, you know, find some rich people to take care of us. I don't think that's the idea. Because in the early church, the way they understood this was that it's not the rich people that they should be going out and making friends with, but it's the people who have no power, the people who have no resources. Uh, Among Jews around the time of Jesus, there was this idea that uh, the rich help the poor in this life and the poor help the rich in the next because the poor say, this person was good to me and helped me. Um, And that Christians, when when they... sort of took this on, they took it in their own way and they saw themselves as not needing to use the world's power because they knew that God's power had already been revealed in Christ. So they didn't need to worry about making friends with people who were wealthy. What they needed to worry about was making friends with people who had no power because they had the access to the one true power that had been revealed to them in Christ so that they could go to others and bring that to them and make friends with those who were down and out and who were hopeless, who were in need, and who needed the grace of God in their lives. And I think that this is saying, at least in part, is that our job in the kingdom of God is to make friends with those people who uh, God puts first. And God consistently through Scripture puts those who are in need first in His kingdom. The last will be first and the first will be last. It's that reversal thing in the kingdom of God. So to make friends with those who are in need is in God's kingdom to make friends with those who really are the ones who have power because it's those who are in need who have God's power on their side. The third lesson is in uh, verses 10 and 12. And it says this, "...whoever is faithful in very little is faithful also in much." And whoever is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. If then you who have not been faithful with a dishonest wealth, uh, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? Now what this is not saying, what this is not saying is that if you're faithful with a little bit of money, you'll get more money. Because we all know that, that, that the world doesn't work that way. We all know people who have been faithful and honest in their dealings and with the money that they have and the resources that they have who haven't wound up wealthy. And sometimes I've heard interpretations of this that say, okay, 
All you need is a little bit of faith. And if you're faithful with these, this amount of money or these resources, then God's going to make you rich. But we know that it doesn't work that way. And I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I don't think Jesus is directly talking about financial resources at all. I think what Jesus is talking about is what it means to be faithful with what God has given us to do on a daily basis. And by being faithful in the little things that God has given us, it gives us then an opportunity as we grow and mature to be faithful in a bigger and bigger way. Um, I might have told this story before, but I'll risk telling it again. The Archbishop of Canterbury, that's the head of the, the Church of England, uh, a guy named Rowan Williams is the previous Archbishop of Canterbury. One day he was in a worship service where uh, you know, the things were going smoothly, and all of a sudden, from the back of the room, burst in this group of protesters, and it's men protesting for father's rights, which is a big thing in England at the time. And they were making all kinds of noise and disrupting the service and just took everything over, staged all over the room. And Williams very calmly walks to the leader of the protest, uh, of this almost violent protest, and, and talks to him very calmly and says, you know, we're, we're having a worship service right now, and we're glad that you've come to this place, and if you'd like to, you can share what you want to share, and we'll give you two minutes to do that. And afterwards, we, we just ask that, you know, you're welcome to stay in worship, but if you don't want to, you can leave. And amazingly, the man responds. This, this violent protester, this noisy guy, says his piece, and then some of them leave, and some of them, some of them sit down and stay. And the person I heard tell that story said that years before, he had seen that same man, Rowan Williams, Archbishop of Canterbury, um, on the streets of London, sitting down with homeless people and just having a conversation with them. And the people that he encountered on a daily basis and shared God's love with in a small way prepared him for that moment of crisis where, you know, you were, I think if somebody had happened, when that, if that had happened here, I wouldn't have known what to do. Uh, but he, because he had practiced loving his neighbor on a consistent basis for years and years, when given an opportunity to respond to that in a really profound way, was ready to do it. Now you this week, um, you're probably not going to have an opportunity to be the president of the United States. You're probably not going to be a general somewhere. You're probably not going to you know, rescue 10 people out of a burning building. This sort of things that we think of as big, most of us are probably not going to have the chance to do this week. But this week, you will have an opportunity to love your neighbor. You will have an opportunity to teach a child something. You will have an opportunity uh, to share God's love with somebody. You will have an opportunity to be good to your family. You will have an opportunity to help somebody who's in need. And what the message of this parable is, in part, is that by being faithful with what God gives us in our daily life, it prepares us for greater faithfulness down the road. One final point, and it's in uh, verse 13. Verse 13 says this, No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Uh, you probably remember uh, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength that Jesus teaches. It comes from Deuteronomy 6, 5. Uh, it's the prayer that, that Jews to this day pray every service. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. 
All means all. Um, and it means that everything else has to be valued relative to God. And that if we worship God with all of our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, we don't have space for things that would distract from that. Now, this isn't saying that God doesn't give us good things for us to enjoy. I think God does. And in, if you live in 21st century America, you are extravagantly wealthy compared to most people in the history of the world, or even most people in the world today, even those among us who are in, in real need. Um, so I don't say this to, to make anybody feel guilty. It's just, the, it's just the reality. But part of the temptation of our culture is that we live in a very consumeristic age. And it tells us that, you know, go and get this and get this and get a bigger this and get this and get this and get this. And it becomes sort of a vicious cycle. And it, st- it can very easily start to take over our lives. Uh, and you don't have to be wealthy by national standards for that to happen, for that idea of consumption to just take over your lives. But I notice it's something very interesting here. Jesus doesn't say simply you need to choose God or wealth. He says you can't serve two masters. And the way that a master works is you don't choose your master. You don't tell your master what to do. The master tells you what to do. And when wealth is a master or when consuming is a master, it starts to take over. It almost becomes an addiction. But the the gracious thing that, that we can have through Christ is that God works in the same way and that God can become you know, as we, as we grow as disciples and we realize our need for God more and more and more, we can grow. And it becomes not only us that are sort of consuming God, but God consumes us. God takes us into his life and helps us to grow and to become the people that he has called us to be. You can't serve two masters because there's only room for one master to consume your life and to make everything else be understood relative to that. This isn't saying that resources are bad. It's not saying that money's bad or anything like that. But it is saying that things are things and people are people. And people are made in the image of God. So we have to understand the resources that God has given us. They aren't an end to themselves, but they're there so that we might love other people and love God with them. If there's one thing I want you all to take home today, it's this. Um, In this parable, I think what Jesus is calling us to do is to be in ministry to the world. I mean, we are are in the world and we can't help that. That's where God has, has placed us and wants us to be. But as we are in this world that has so many different temptations that might distract us from his kingdom, we have to be in it but not of it. Um, and in some ways, we're fundamentally at, at odds with it. Flannery O'Connor said that you will know the truth and the truth will make you odd. And to be a Christian is to be odd. You know, so often in our culture, we've thought that, you know, we need as a church to get power. And that way we can influence decisions and, and how things are going to be done. And we try to operate on the world's standards. You know, if we just get enough votes or if we just get enough money or if we just get enough resources, then we can make things like we want them to be. And the church has tried that for a long time, and now it's failing. And the church shrinks by day because we've tried to play the game on the world's terms. But what the parable here tells us is that our response to God doesn't have to be on the world's terms, but it has to come while understanding what goes on in the world as a response to the grace that God has given us so that we can 
really build relationships, risky relationships with people so that we can share God's love with them. And so that we can know that it's not our own power that makes a difference, but Christ's power in us and in the church that can call us to be the people that he's called us to be. And that's my prayer for us as a church, for us as a charge, and for us as God's people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.